Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, I'd like to add a trigger warning, and I never do such things on this podcast, but in this case, I think it's warranted. The discussion ahead involves a lot about rape, both heterosexual and homosexual. And while I think, of course, you can handle a discussion about rape, and I don't doubt our ability to handle it in a, what do I say, interpretive framework, still nonetheless, we're going to talk about it in a way that makes me uncomfortable. I, as I will tell you in the podcast episode, believe that rape is an act of violence. It is particularly a patriarchal act of violence against those whom the patriarchy discards or sees as invaluable. I hold this political assessment of rape, but Dante does not. Instead, Dante sees rape as a corrupted or inferior form of love. That equation of rape with love is particularly troubling. I want to tell you that that lies ahead of us in this episode of the podcast. And I just want to say that we're dealing with Dante and we're trying through the murk of history to get to his mindset. His mindset is quite different from ours when it comes to rape is actually quite disgusting. But given all that, this is an incredibly interesting passage. Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked almost to the gate of purgatory itself. In this episode and the next episode, we will get to that gate. We'll get there in the strangest way imaginable. That is through a dream. How else could you get to Purgatory, I ask you, except by a dream? Anyway, we're at lines 13 through 42 of Purgatorio, Canto 9. You can find this English translation on my website. It is indeed my own translation. Go out there to markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along. You can print it off if you want to make notes. And more importantly, you can continue the conversation by dropping comments at the bottom of those pages on my website. And we can talk through more issues associated with this difficult passage in which Dante dreams his way toward purgatory or, as we'll discover, dreams and is carried on his way to the gate of purgatory. If you remember, Dante has come through the many slopes of the lower parts of purgatory, seeing those who died violently, seeing the excommunicated, seeing those who were negligent toward divine things and more attentive to earthly things, and just seeing the plain old lazy, oh dear Balakwa, you still lie behind us. We've come all the way through that and even through a piece of street theater between angels and a serpent to arrive here at this moment in which our pilgrim is asleep and morning seems to be dawning. Let's get to it. Purgatorio, Canto 9, lines 13 through 42. At the hour so close to morning that the swallow starts up her sad songs, perhaps as a memorial to her sorrows from ages ago, and when our mind, more like a pilgrim from our flesh and less hemmed in by our thoughts, is a prophet 
in its visions. In a dream, I thought I saw an eagle with golden feathers way up in the sky, its wings open and intent on a dive. It seemed to me I was in the very spot where Ganymede abandoned his own kin when he was lofted to the Supreme Council. So I thought, maybe it's mere habit that makes that bird strike right here, disdaining to pick someone up from anywhere else with its claws. Then it seemed to me that after it wheeled around a bit, it shot down as terrible as lightning and ravaged me up to the sphere of fire. Up there, it seemed as if both it and I ignited. The imagined burning was so intense that my sleep was broken to bits. It wasn't any different from the way Achilles jumped up, straining his surprised eyes in a wide circle and not knowing where he was when his mother carried him asleep in her arms from Chiron to Skyros, from which point the Greeks would later take him away. Like that, I woke up with any trace of sleep gone from my face. I then turned pale, like a guy who can't move because he's so afraid. This is going to be a rather long episode because there is so much going on here. There are three distinct classical allusions, one with that swallow and the sad songs, one with Ganymede and one with Achilles. We need to talk through those. We need to talk about the dream function here. That's, in fact, where we're going to start is at the dream function. And then we need to talk about Dante and unnatural love and his rather interesting take on homosexuality. Let's set to. That time of the morning, this tends to lend credence to the idea that Dante did fall asleep as Aurora or the dawn was starting. I know that many people claim that Dante has slept many, many hours and now it's nearing dawn. But it seems to me it's more logical to say that dawn was starting in the last passage and here we have dawn actually coming on. This is the moment when, as the passage says, our mind, more like a pilgrim, there's that loaded word, pilgrim, a pilgrim from our flesh and less hemmed in by our thoughts, is a prophet in its visions. First of all, this dream occurs just before dawn, and you should know there is a long folkloric tradition that dreams before midnight are false and dreams after midnight are are true. Is this a false or a true dream? Well, as we'll see in the next episode of the podcast, it ends up being a true dream. But I want to tell you that when we're going to talk about it in this episode, it's going to seem like a false dream. Also, of course, the idea that dreams are prophetic, that you wander away like a pilgrim from your body. This is common thought in Dante's day. We can find passages in Aquinas to support this, in St. Augustine, even in Cicero that Dante may have known, and then Dante in his own Vivio also seems to advance this idea that dreams, particularly those closest to the morning, reveal something very true. But what I want to say about this is that this passage puts to an end the discussion that all of comedy is a dream. There are dreams in Purgatorio, and given that there are dreams in Purgatorio, I don't think that Dante is quite so postmodern as to make 
make a dream happen inside of a dream. You know, many people claim that all of comedy is some giant dream vision, but I just don't buy it. And one of the reasons I don't buy it is because the Pilgrim Dante dreams during the course of comedy. Here we have this dream of the eagle, which involves Ganymede and Achilles and a lot of classical learning. Let's get to the classical learning. I'm going to go back to the opening three lines. Uh, the hour so close to morning that the swallow starts up her sad songs, perhaps as a memorial to her sorrows from ages ago. Dante seems to here be making a reference to the Procne Philomel story. And I need to tell you that story. It would be specifically known to Dante from Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 6, lines 412 through 674. Essentially, Tereus marries Procne, and they have a son, and they live in Thrace. Okay, that's as much as you need to know. And Procne has a sister, Philomel, and she lives in Athens. Procne would like to see her sister, so she sends her husband, Tereus, to get Philomel from Athens. He, on his way back to Thrace with Philomel, rapes her, and he silences her by cutting out her tongue. He then comes back home, claims Philomel is dead, through a series of events which include Philomel, now tongueless, weaving a cloth that tells her story. Philomel gets the point across to Procne that she's been raped by Procne's husband and abandoned. Procne, well, basically kills their son and feeds their son to her husband. So eats his own son, oh gosh, and then discovers that he's eating his own son as an act of revenge and chases after Procne and Philomel to kill them. In that chase, the two sisters pray to the gods and are changed into birds, into a nightingale and a swallow. And while we're at it, Tereus is changed in a hoopoe or a hoopo, depending on how you pronounce it, another sort of bird. All three of them are changed into birds. Which one is the nightingale, Procne or Philomel, and which one is the swallow is a little bit uh, muddied in Dante's day. And in fact, he seems to claim that Philomel is the swallow because later in Purgatorio, it seems as if Procne is definitely the nightingale. Dante may get this mixed up. Who's the nightingale and who's the swallow in the Ovidian story? And he may have it backwards or he may have it from some other source, which he could have because other people mixed it up too. Anyway, this is sitting underneath these three lines as kind of a bedrock reference. The most important thing you should know here is the bedrock reference to the sorrow is to rape. And what happens ahead of us? The eagle. It comes down and it picks up our pilgrim, carries him up to the sphere of fire. They both ignite. We surely know about sexual passion and fire. Dante then gets compared to Ganymede. And as Dante is carried up, 
In fact, the word used at line 30 is me rapise. The eagle, I don't want to say raped me. That's too strong. But it certainly has the connotation of ravishment about it. So we start out this passage with a notion of rape. And then we continue on into it with Ganymede. I'm moving to lines 19 through 27. Here we see the actual dream. In the dream, the lines say, I thought I saw an eagle. And you should just know that this keeps saying, I thought, it seemed to me, I thought, it seemed to me. This is to cue us, I think, from the poet that this is indeed a dream. What is happening here is not actually happening. And you'll notice in the rest of comedy, we're not told, I thought I saw Farinata, (laughs) or I thought I saw Brunetto Latini, or it seemed to me I see Ulysses. No, in fact, they're just presented as realistic figures who the pilgrim encounters. Here, the cueing is constantly to remind us, this is a dream, this is a dream, this isn't really happening. Back to the lines. In a dream, I thought I saw an eagle with golden feathers way up in the sky. It's wings open and intent on a dive. It seemed to me I was in the very spot where Ganymede abandoned his own kin when he was lofted to the Supreme Council. Let's just stop here and talk about this. Ganymede, the cupbearer of Zeus. Ganymede was thought to be the most beautiful man. There are other candidates for this, but how about one of the most beautiful men ever created? In both Virgil's Aeneid and in Statius's Thebiad, Ganymede is taken up in the sky basically for sexual purposes for Zeus or Jupiter, and also Jupiter's cupbearer. That's in the Aeneid, Book 5, lines 252 through 257, or in the Thebiad, Book 1, lines 548 through 551. I think it's really important that Statius is entering the passage dramatically because he's going to come up even more in the third image in this passage. What's happening here is that Dante is being picked up as Ganymede was and taken up into the sky and, dare I say it, ravished. And we should know that Dante apparently is standing on Mount Ida because he says maybe it's mere habit that makes the bird strike right here, disdaining to pick up someone from anywhere else with its claws. That's mostly the Mount Ida, not in Crete, but the Mount Ida in western Turkey, a sacred spot to Zeus. Yes, the Mount Ida in Crete is also sacred to Zeus, but it seems as if Dante is standing on a sacred spot a spot where this eagle always attacks, always carries off this young man. We should see that pilgrim here in the position of Ganymede being carried off to the Supreme Council ahead, but we shouldn't miss the more dire and dangerous implications of this vision. Let's skip down to lines 34 through 42 and talk about the last classical image in the passage, and this is Achilles. This is Dante waking up, and he says it wasn't any different from the way Achilles jumped up, straining his surprised eyes in a wide circle and not knowing where he was when his mother carried him asleep but in her arms from Chiron to Skyros from which point the Greeks would later take him away. This is from Statius's Achilleid, his unfinished 
epic about Achilles. It's in book one, lines 104, all the way out to line 250. All that bit about gold feathers, that's all from Statius. In fact, this passage is cribbed heavily from Statius, and we want to pay attention more and more to the bits of Statius ahead of us because... If you don't know, Statius himself is going to become a character in Purgatorio. So we're keeping track of the references as they occur. Achilles, you may remember, is taught by the centaur Chiron. His mother doesn't like this as much. She feels some danger in his being taught by a centaur. And so she picks him up while he's asleep and carries him off to the island of Skyros to protect him there. And this is where we get kind of weird in Statius. Achilles dresses as a woman in order to stay hidden. When Ulysses and Diomedes show up, they trade dresses filled with armaments. And Achilles sees the armaments, throws off his dress, and suddenly they talk him into going away with them to their tragic battles at Troy. Again, we have more transgressions in gender. We have more ways in which gender is violated in some way in the passage, whether that be through rape. And I don't want to equate these things. Let me just pause a minute and say I'm not equating them. But we have gender relations foregrounded in the passage through the rape of Philomel, through the ravishment of Ganymede, and here Achilles in dresses on this island. And it seems that this passage really replicates that moment from Achilles because Achilles, in fact, in Statius's unfinished epic, does indeed wake up and is very shocked at where his mother has carried him off. And thus this passage, I woke up with any trace of sleep gone from my face. I then turned pale like a guy who can't move because he's so afraid. This imagery is very sad. It's very, uh, what do we want to say, melancholic. We want to talk about that. But before we talk about that, let's just talk about the intensity of the middle of the passage. At lines 28 to 33, the poet says, It seemed to me that after it wheeled about the eagle, it shot down as terrible as lightning and ravaged me up to the sphere of fire. That would be there is a sphere of fire that encircles the globe that is above the air. So we have the sphere of the air and then the sphere of fire and then the moon sits above that. Why there is a sphere of fire there and why we can't really see it is a matter of much medieval physics <laughs> and the debate in that physics. In fact, the debate extending all the way back to the classical age. I don't want to engage that debate. I just want to tell you that there's a sphere of air, a sphere of fire, and then the sphere of the moon in medieval cosmology and in Dante's cosmology. So this eagle carries Dante up beyond the air into the fire, and there they both ignite, thereby making the eagle almost phoenix-like, except we don't see its resurrection. The imagined burning, the passage says, was so intense that my sleep was broken to bits. So this physical reaction to the flames burning them both up is so big that it breaks the dream. 
we don't have to go very far to see the connection between fire and love. We're at the kind of fire that burns the saints, the love that burns the saints. And yet here, it's all given this rather tragic or sorrowful classical overtone. We have to talk about that because it's so curious in this passage. The classical imagery here, as I've said, is sorrowful, and it adds a distinct texture to this canto, Canto 9, The Gate of Purgatory, and it also helps us see it as more than just an ascent. In other words, Dante is climbing the mountain and here has a dream about ascent, which we will discover in the next passage, is the actual ascent to the gate itself. But in this ascent, which is all triumphal and wonderful, there is, what do I want to say, sadness, the texture of sorrow, of loss. Let's talk about that for a minute. When you, in fact, convert to anything, and I don't mean just a Christian conversion, although we can take it as that, but when you change your mind, when your attitudes change, when you move the fence to use our previous imagery— When that happens, you inevitably face loss. You put a lot of effort into those fence posts. You put a lot of effort into that old life. And although you may have willingly left it behind or left your way of thinking behind, there's still a little bit of sadness about it. I spent so much time maintaining that fence. I spent so much time in my old life. And I think Dante is very conscious of the fact that conversion carries with it some sadness. Let, let, me, let me give you a really stupid example. Let's say you have severe cardiological problems and your cardiologist says, to you you know, you really have to eat a no salt and low fat diet. And you think, well, I'm going to do this because, you know, it's going to prolong my life and give me a better outcome. And yet at the same time, you have to think to yourself, but I'm going to miss ice cream and I'm going to miss camembert. You have willingly made that change in your life for a better life. And yet there's a little bit of loss, sadness, nostalgia, sorrow. There's <laughs> Philomel's song down in it. Now, listen, I don't want to equate rape with giving up ice cream. Please don't accuse me of that. What I mean here is that there is sorrow embedded in this passage, and we don't even have to jump out to the classical imagery. It's in the passage itself. It's at lines 14 through 15. The swallow starts up her sad songs, perhaps as a memorial to her sorrows from ages ago. And it's at the end of the passage, lines 41 through 42. I turned pale like a guy who can't move because he's so afraid. That sorrow is in the passage stated outright, and it's buried in the classical imagery here. From being ripped away from your teacher, the centaur Chiron, to being ripped away from your kin and carried up to the gods to be the love boy of the high god and his cupbearer, to the horrifying rape of Philomel, the cutting out of her tongue, and finally her attempt to tell her story to her sister Procne. All of that carries with it this unbelievable sadness. We can go all the way back to Tithonus 
and pick it up. Remember the passage, the canto, opens with the concubine of Tithonus. And we had that whole discussion in the last episode about why is Tithonus got a concubine? Why is Aurora his concubine and not his wife? Maybe there's a way this is all connected up. If you think about Tithonus, Philomel, Ganymede, and even Achilles, if you think about them and their trajectory in their stories, what we have here are various examples of unnatural, or I'm going to use a really loaded term, unchristian love. Tithonus for a concubine, Tereus for Philomel, Jupiter for Ganymede, Achilles for a centaur, and Achilles <laughs> dressing up as a woman. We have all kinds of, for Dante, dysmorphic ideas of love here. Now, I don't want to say that dressing up as a woman is dysmorphic to me, and I don't want to say, obviously, that homosexuality is dysmorphic, but I think in Dante's conception of what's going on here in Canto 9, we see unnatural love. That is not fully purified Christian love. And it is still love. It can still burn you up. It can still set you on fire, ignite you, make you very excited. It can do all of that, but it can also burn you. And it's also not yet fully purified. And thus, we have these instances from Tithonus forward of unnatural love, which for me is why Dante has to start it with the concubine of Tithonus. He has to taint that love in some way because all of the love throughout these 42 opening lines of the canto is tainted. And I realize calling rape tainted love is horrific. Do I think that's the truth? No. Do I think it's probably the truth in a medieval context? Yes. And do I think that, in fact, Dante would hold ideas like that? Yes. I do not think that rape is just some kind of unnatural love. I think it's an act of power and violence. But one of the things that's amazing here is that he does see homosexuality closer to how I see it than almost anyone else in the Middle Ages. In this passage, Dante sees Ganymede, if my reading is right, as part of this distorted love or unnatural love, but it's still love. Is love expressed in the Philomel Procne story? Again, no, not in my books, but in Dante's books, maybe. Is, in fact, Tithonus with his concubine an unnatural form of love? Yes. For Dante, do I hold that you have to be married before you can have marital love? Of course not. But Dante is then putting Ganymede and homosexuality in a distorted form of love. And this is very unusual for the Middle Ages. I can't stress how unusual this is. It's not a perversion. Rather, it's heading toward the divine thing itself. It's not there. It's expressed incorrectly, but it's part 
of the love that draws you ever toward the presence of God in comedy. That's why the notion of homosexuality will change so fundamentally in Purgatorio, as we'll see. Remember in Inferno, the homosexuals are punished with the violent because they've been violent against nature. Brunetto Latini, as well as Jacopo Rusticucci and others, are running around on those burning sands because they have perverted or blasphemed God's child nature. When we get to Purgatorio, the notion of homosexuality will change, and Dante will start to see it as a form of love, just not the right form of love. And that is a huge step. I say this not only as a gay man, but just as somebody reading comedy. This is a giant step for a medieval writer. No other medieval writer I know of would ever say such a thing, and yet Dante does. I just want to keep rehashing this because it's so unusual, and it's so unusual to drop Ganymede into this text, a symbol in the Middle Ages of homosexual love. And I think you have to read it in the rubric of the concubine of Tithonus, Philomel, and Procne, Achilles. You have to read it in this rubric of unnatural, affectionate relations that will be purified to perfection. It's not a dastardly perversion. Instead, as we will discover over the course of Purgatorio, homosexuality gets very close to the actual essence of divine love. That is just shocking. It deserves much thought on our part when we approach Dante. I do not believe, as Robert Durling pushes so hard, that Dante was a homosexual or that he was a homosexual who somehow never acted on his proclivities. I just don't buy it in the face of his unbelievable love for Beatrice. I don't know where Robert Durling gets this idea, except from passages like this with Ganymede, but I think you have to put it in the larger rubric of Philomel, Tithonus, and the rest of them to understand it. A lot to say about this passage, so let's read it one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 9, lines 13 through 42. At the hour so close to morning that the swallow starts up her sad songs, perhaps as a memorial to her sorrows from ages ago, and when our mind, more like a pilgrim from our flesh and less hemmed in by our thoughts, is a prophet in its visions, in a dream I thought I saw an eagle with golden feathers way up in the sky, its wings wide open and intent on a dive. It seemed to me I was in the very spot where Ganymede abandoned his own kin when he was lofted to the Supreme Council. So I thought, maybe it's mere habit that makes that bird strike right here, disdaining to pick someone up from anywhere else with its claws. Then it seemed to me that after it wheeled about a bit, it shot down as terrible as lightning and ravaged me up to the sphere of fire. Up there, it seemed as if both it and I ignited. The imagined burning was so intense that my sleep was broken to bits. It wasn't any different from the way Achilles jumped up, straining his surprised eyes in a wide circle and not knowing where he was when his mother carried him asleep but in her arms from Chiron to Skiros, from which point the Greeks would later take him away. Like that, I woke up with any trace of sleep gone from my face. I then turned pale like a guy who can't move because he's so afraid. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Walking with Dante. I know it was very long and complicated. This is a complicated bit. I thought about dropping this passage into several episodes, but I just wasn't sure where to break it and how to make the break make sense. Instead, I made the break late in the passage before we get to the revelation of what actually happened in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So to get there, subscribe to this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, give it a rating. That would be fantastic. And even write a review. I really appreciate it when it occurs because it helps the podcast stay current. It's one of the ways you can support this podcast is just to say great podcast or having a great walk with you. Thanks so much. I'm walking on. I hope you're walking with me. Let's go on to the interpretation of this dream or, well, should we say it, the reality of this dream in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's get ready for the next steps. Mm-hmm.